off course forms of participation, they take a lot of those barriers away. Yeah. A 23 year old who's never played golf on a golf course before can show up on the second deck at a top golf wearing business attire or wearing a motorcycle jacket and boots and dribble the ball off the second deck and score points. Welcome to Golf Sustainability, the podcast dedicated to advancing sustainability of the environment and the game of golf for future generations. Hosted by golf sustainability founder, John Fiella. The Golf Sustainability Podcast will feature conversations with industry leaders on the environmental and social issues impacting the future of the game. Let's tee off. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Greg Nathan, President and Chief Operating Officer of the National Golf Foundation. For those of you unfamiliar with NGF, they're essentially the McKinsey of the golf world. The depth and breadth of data that they have on the industry is really unparalleled. As an executive member of MGF, I had the good fortune to attend their recent uh, NGF symposium, and it was just a spectacular parade of data and insights that I felt very fortunate to participate in. That was a great event, Greg. Your entire job did an amazing job, and I know you're swamped just coming off of that, so I, I really appreciate you taking time to participate on the Golf Sustainability Podcast. My pleasure, John. I'm so glad that you had the opportunity to attend the symposium. It's uh, our 15th time, and the, the lead-in to that event is uh, always a true grind for an organization of our size, 25 employees. Um, but once I see the people, uh, once I'm there and, and it's happening and see people like you and the leaders of companies in every vertical in golf, it has a way of energizing a golf crazy lunatic like me. All right, let's show Greg, why don't we start by having you tell us a little about yourself and your journey leading to your current work as president of the National Golf Foundation. Thank you, John. Yeah, happy to. So I actually grew up in suburban New York City, Westchester County. Uh, I did not grow up in a golf home. And in fact, nobody in my family played golf. I think I think my I think I had a couple of grandparents. We say that it skipped a generation. I had a, a few okay. grandparents who played. I grew up playing tennis. In fact, I was a, a club tennis pro at two great golf and country clubs in Westchester County, Waikagill and Braeburn. And I started to get at least a taste of golf, actually hitting balls in a schoolyard, maybe when I was in sixth or seventh grade with a friend of mine. We'd go out there with our imagination and a, a few clubs and balls and create holes in on the grounds of North Street School where I went to fourth grade. So I knew there was something about this game I was crazy about. And I count myself extremely lucky that by the time I was 22, John, I would say I knew for sure that I wanted to work in golf. I didn't know exactly what capacity, but if somebody asked me, I would have said something like this. 
I want to work in golf. I want to know the leaders, the business leaders in the industry. I want them to know me because I do something of value for them. It's about the best I could do. And the amazing thing, and I've written blogs about it many years ago, is I found somewhat by accident the needle in the haystack job, the ultimate job that fits that description. Just a quick background. My career started in advertising on Madison Avenue in New York. I worked for nine years in account management, three different agencies, worked on big brands and small, worked for an amazing agency. My first job was with a place called Amorati and Purist, which does not exist anymore, but I'd say in 1995, it was National Agency of the Year, uh, Ad Week and Ad Age. So I had a really fortunate uh, experience of working with incredibly driven, talented, fun people in my 20s. And eventually I was able to move into the golf business. My first job was with Golf Magazine in New York. I started in the year 2000 doing in the marketing department. And that was really my first taste. I worked there from 2000 to 2007, and while I was there, one of my roles, a very small part of my job, but legitimate part of my job, was interacting with the NGF on behalf of some senior executives or anyone who worked at Golf Magazine. If they needed information on state of the industry, generally what they wanted is, give me some good news that I can go to my clients with that says golf is doing great. Now, of course, that's not always the case. So sometimes that was a harder job than others. But that's where I got to know the NGF a little bit. And in 2006, what happened was my contact at the NGF called me up one day, John, and he said, I'm leaving. And I decided at that moment that I had been reading for many years Things written by Dr. Joe Bettis, the, the CEO, longtime CEO of the National Golf Foundation. And I knew that Joe was one of the most respected people in the golf industry. And when my friend Andy Allen said, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm moving back to Winston-Salem, where I'm from, I thought to myself, okay, I think I'm grown up enough now that I can reach out to Joe Bettis and he'll, he'll take my call and I, I got to meet this guy. And I did. And we met at the PGA show in 2007 for the first time. And we had this amazing breakfast. And at the end of that breakfast, he said, I'm looking for somebody. I'm looking for somebody to run our consulting business, somebody with some relationships, and at the end of it, in only the way that Joe Bettis can, he looked across the table after an hour and a half and he said, so Greg, if you know anybody <laughs> who might be interested in that job, that person could be a dark horse candidate. That's what Joe said to me. And of course, not to make this story too long, but of course I went home after this interaction with Dr. Bettis and had a conversation with my wife. I can see it in my mind as if it was yesterday. And I said, ah, there's no way I'm moving to Florida to work with those research geeks. 
that was my moronic response. But what it means, and it's still quite relevant today, John, is that the NGF does some really amazing things. But most people who work in the golf business, even people who've been in the business a long time, if you ask them to explain what the NGF does, they'd have a hard time doing it. I've spent the last 16 years helping more people understand uh, what we do. And it's been a great run. And to, to have the role that I do now is, is a real honor and a privilege. Great. Listen, you're a young guy. You're just getting started. So this is really fascinating. So basically, you're living the dream right? You envision this job that you wanted and you have it. What's fascinating is fourth grade, you start in a schoolyard, you started in golf off course, which is the topic that we'll be talking about here today. And you provided a really nice segue to what I'd like to talk about next. And that is maybe give our listeners a sense for the scope and range of the activities that you're engaged in at the National Golf Foundation? Sure. The NGF is best known as golf research data and insights company, a business-to-business organization that serves, essentially, we are the trade association for every business that operates in golf. And one of the unique things on that side of our business, the 501c6, is that we're the only organization that works with the companies in every vertical. So if you think about the alphabet soup that makes up the associations in golf, you got the PGA of America, that's for golf pros, the CMAA, that's for managers, the GCSAA, that's for supers. Um, and it goes on and on. But the NGF is not a, a professional accreditation organization. We're the trade association for every golf-related business. So that's where we essentially, we study what's going on in the golf economy. That means very simply, we study everything that's happening on the supply side. So everywhere that golf is played, golf is bought, golf is played off course. We study that and the changes in it. And then we study the demand side. We study golfers and demographics and spending and behavior and travel and every way that, that someone could look at the golf consumer. Mm -hmm. And it's all for the purpose of reporting on what we've learned and to try to provide insight from that data for those who run golf-related businesses. That's the trade association side. That's the more well-known side of our business. But lesser known is that about 75 or 80% of NGF's revenues come from private work. This is where the comparison with McKinsey comes in mm -hmm. that you gave at the beginning, is we do a tremendous amount of private work for golf leading companies who will hire us to help them learn more about their customers and prospects to help them get intelligence that helps them compete. Uh, from a position of data and insight strength. Then secondly, we do a lot of marketing work. Marketing in 2023 and beyond is driven by data. So as Golf's data company, we're quite capable and help companies sell stuff. That's mm -hmm. the technical way I like to talk about. It. And then the, 
we and we do some private consulting work, all different kinds of consulting. So it's two businesses in one. It's the trade association for every golf related business. And then it's, it's a quite sophisticated private consulting firm that helps individual companies compete. Yeah. The boy, there are a couple things there that you really tied together for me. The sense that it's the all industry uh, group makes a lot of sense to me because there are lots of associations, but they're all siloed around a particular function. And NGF's really the only group I've come across that kind of looks at the total picture on a holistic level. That's one of our unique positions. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm glad I made the decision to become a member. I'm glad I'm now an executive member. And I can tell you, anyone who's in the industry that's not getting the benefits of your insights and data, I think is at a real disadvantage. My Thank first, you. Listen, you're welcome and, and it's well-deserved. My first step in getting exposed to what you're doing was when I subscribed to that bi-weekly newsletter that's it's free. It's available to everyone. It's called Fortnite. It comes out every two weeks and it's very data rich. It'll be like a deep dive on one topic. And once you read a couple, three issues of Fortnite, you see what the power of the data engine is behind the, the organization. So I would encourage anyone that's listening to this episode to go to ngf.org and sign up for Fortnite. It's, it's free and it's a great initial way to get exposed to the fine work of NGF. Greg, one of the topics at the symposium that really captured my attention because I had no idea how important it's become is this notion of the growth of off-course golf and how it's actually fueling growth in the on-course game. I can imagine that when these off these new off course channels started to develop on course, people may have felt, "Hey, this is a potential threat." But that's really not been the case. I'd like to spend a balance of our conversation talking about that, and maybe the best place to start, Greg, is for you to give us kind of a definition: what's off course golf? What are the elements and major segments of off course golf? Happy to do that, John. So. As long as there have been golf courses, there have been driving ranges. So that's the original off-course golf participation. NGF doing what it does, managing the supply-side databases. We started many years ago measuring how many standalone driving ranges are there. Of course, we also look at the driving ranges that are at golf courses, but Driving range is that place where you're not on the golf course, but you're hitting a real ball with a real club with a full swing. And today in 2023, the preponderance of two other ways that are a little bit less traditional than the quote unquote traditional driving range would be top golf, that type of golf entertainment. There are several. Mm -hmm. There's Big shots and drive shack we have right down here in South Florida, at the right next to the Palm Beach International Airport. Places that combine a traditional driving range, but with technology and gaming and food and beverage. And that part of the business has exploded. 
And then the, the third way that we track carefully that people participate off course is uh, simulator golf or screen golf. Mm-hmm. And it's those three traditional driving range, what we call golf entertainment, and then you have uh, screen golf or simulator golf. Each of those three ways is a real ball, real club, full swing. And the reason why that's important, why does the NGF care about that? It's because in our study of how, what are the elements that are required for a human to become hooked on on on-course golf? One of the core elements that gets somebody hooked is this thing that Dr. Bettis coined many years ago called, that we call shot euphoria. I love and that. Shot euphoria is that fantastic feeling when you swing the club and you, you compress the ball, it goes up in the air and it soars in a way. And it, it's such a satisfying feeling. I call it golf's drug. And not every activity has that where you get that little mini high and I am, as a very passionate golfer myself, I spend the rest of my life trying to get shot euphoria as many times as humanly possible. It's just a little bit more of a healthy habit than some of the other ways to get that, that high. I love that. And so it's not that we don't embrace everything from virtual golf video games, putt, putt, or mini golf. But what we concentrate on is where you can get shot euphoria, because if you get shot euphoria in an off-course environment, it's much more likely that you would seek that experience in an on-course environment. Nice. that, Or just to find out that you like that. Yeah. That's the, so it's the gateway drug, basically. <laughs> the, the So of the three sectors, as you mentioned, driving ranges have been around forever it's those latter two sectors, golf entertainment and simulators that really, I think, have changed the game. What are the, if I recall co- correctly, the number of people participating in off-course has actually exceeded on-course participation for the first time in 2022. Take us through some of the numbers and the trends on what's happening with off-course golf, Greg. Sure. So, Let's just look at the last, in the last nine to 10 years, that's where a tremendous amount of development has happened. Let's just use Top Golf as an example. Looking at some data that I have here, I think back in 2006, actually, there were three. And today it's close to 100. If you include Top Golf and the other, options like it. So that in itself, because of the size of these facilities, the fact that they're popular and they're busy, just the the growth of supply would be one thing if they were empty, but that's not what the situation is. It's extremely popular. So just once again, go in 2014, then there were 5.4 million off course only mm-hmm. who did not people who did one of those three things, but did not play in a golf course. Okay. 5.4 million in 2023, that number was more than three times higher. It was almost 18 million. So that's 
super significant. If we look at the total of off-course participants, we're up to about 32 million. Mm -hmm. So that includes not just the off-course only, but people who participate in, in off-course in one of those three ways, but also there's a significant group of them who also play on-course. In fact, we've done research on Topgolf's customers. We've been hired several times to study their customers, and it's roughly 50-50 of their customers in terms of whether they also play on-course golf or not. Mm-hmm. So in the last 10 years, off-course has grown by about 122%. It's grown by 17.5 million mm-hmm. Americans. So it's quite significant, and it, it is a, a wonderful way. I don't think there's an activity, a sport in the world that wouldn't give their left pinky toe to have this on-ramp for their game. Yeah, that's what it's really become. It has become uh, an on-ramp. I, I was at a conference recently in Vegas, Greg, and it was at the MGM, so it was right around the corner from the top golf facility there. I don't know if you've been there. I have. The place is packed. It's multi-level. Everything was going on. They've got this massive pool there so people can take a swim if they want. It was an incredible entertainment center. What do you think is, so it's not just growth in facilities, it's growth in participation. What do you think are the drivers behind this interest and engagement in both simulator golf and golf entertainment? That's easy. It's very well aligned. Those activities are just so well aligned with the type of recreation that people look for these days. It's accessible. It's all about fun. It's food and beverage. This is an amazing thing we learned, John. People like beer. (laughs) People enjoy having a drink, some good food, doing an activity, and there's a gaming and a technology element that brings it all together. On course golf, 8% roughly of Americans participate on course, green grass golf. Green grass golf has been very healthy recently with some really solid growth on the traditional green grass golf side. But what has historically held green grass golf back from growth is that golf golf can be quite intimidating. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the industry still has a long way to go in terms of making not people who are not already in the franchise, people who are not already comfortable mm-hmm. in the golf course environment, it can be quite intimidating. There is a factor of I am concerned about not knowing the orthodoxies of on-course golf, and I'm going to embarrass myself. Mm-hmm. And people prioritize things in their life, John, that are fun. Of course. So if you if you go into an environment and you are concerned about embarrassing yourself, by the way, it's a virtual 100% guarantee that every golfer 
who goes to play golf on a given day is going to embarrass themselves. Okay, we are going to hit a shot that is pretty embarrassing. But this is more about being comfortable in the golf course environment. And golf could go much further to being welcoming and accommodating and help help find out, first of all, to ask the questions. Is this your first time here? Do you play golf? Quite. Tell me a little bit about your game. Oh, I've only just started playing. Oh, let, please, let me help you. We'd like to see a, a higher level of what I would call radical hospitality. And those of us who love the game, we, we actually don't need a lot of service to enjoy a round of golf because we know where to go and what to do. So it's a difficult thing because... Someone who is a novice doesn't walk into a golf course wearing a hat that says, I'm new to the game, please help me. That doesn't happen. And I just think it's, it's an easy thing for me to say, we need to ask more. Going back to the question, circling back, off course forms of participation, they take a lot of those barriers away. Yeah. A, a 23-year-old who's never played golf on a golf course before can show up on the second deck at a Top Golf wearing business attire or wearing a motorcycle jacket and boots and dribble the ball off the second deck and score points <laughs> and have fun and eat and drink. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we, we are huge advocates at the NGF. We're massive advocates of off course golf. We love people engaging in any way in the game and it just makes the pie bigger. It's not, we've studied, we study the golf, golf demand side all the time. There, there's really no evidence of cannibalization. In fact, what we found is that they feed off each other. If you play, if you're a golfer and you play off course, it tends to make you want to play more. Sure. And if you're, it, it, it just, yeah. the, the two things feed off each other beautifully. You play on course and oh, maybe I should take the family and go to Top Golf. You go to Top Golf and maybe I want to play more on course. Yeah, it's boy, you've described it in terms that I've never really thought of before. The traditional game, the green grass game, there is a lot of pressure to perform associated with that. And that pressure to perform is absent in that top golf environment. People drub a shot and they laugh and they're having fun and it's no big deal. It is a much more comfortable way to get exposed to the game. And then I could see how someone experiences shot euphoria and they're like, wow, I could do this. Maybe I will go to that local muni or I will accompany someone the next time I'm, I'm invited to play at their club. It really sounds to me like this isn't a fad. This is something that's, that's going to continue the... The feeding, you reference how they can feed on one another. I'm particularly interested in the, the migration from people who start off course that wind up on course. 
Is that happening organically, or do you see a lot of interaction between greengrass facilities and off-course facilities to try to stimulate that and promote it, or is this at this point happening entirely in, in an organic manner? It's primarily an organic matter, in an organic, not organic matter. Right. It's in an organic <laughs> manner, but there is a lot of organic matter at golf courses, but that's for a different podcast. Right. That's the environmental side, right? So here's an interesting thing. I'll try not to go too deep into the weeds, but it is, from a research standpoint, it is incredibly difficult and cost prohibitive to in a linear fashion, be able to follow individuals who are starting at golf, watch them do off course, and then be able to say that they're converted. Okay. And we don't even look at it that way. We don't really think of it as people graduating. Right. Because what we, it, it's highly likely that golf's best customer would be a, a dually. You know, someone who does both, someone who plays off course and does on course. Now, the industry that the National Golf Foundation represents, the companies that support golf courses or that support recre the recreational game, the great majority of them, they make their money based on on course, green grass, recreational golf. So we're never going to confuse, we're not confusing the two things. The industry that we serve of course, we have Top Golf Callaway, the biggest company in the history of golf as a client. And we love working. We work with a dozen simulator companies and launch monitor companies. These are serious businesses, but we have to look at the green grass game in terms of the, the overall industry. What we have found, John, is that those with off course experience, Mm -hmm. Those who have traditional driving range, golf entertainment or simulator, they're five to six times more interested in the green grass game wow. than somebody who has not done one of those activities. Mm -hmm. Five or six X mm -hmm. more interested. And we're also noticing it's roughly two thirds of the golfers that we track that started for the first time in a given year. So we're doing these studies every year. So we know the number of Americans who tried golf for the first time in a given year. And it's usually between two and a half and three million people mm -hmm. every year who tried golf for the first time. It's about two thirds of those people have green, have a off course experience. Mm -hmm. And that number's been rising. I'm looking at a slide right now that would say in 2018, not that long ago, it was only 39% mm -hmm. of the those who were trying golf for the first time, 39% had some off-course experience. Now, that includes traditional driving range. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be modern golf that they tried. Mm -hmm. okay? But going from 39% to full two-thirds, 66%, in a period of roughly five years, mm -hmm. it's making a difference. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. <laughs> it's a fascinating topic. I'd love to, to keep going on it. I think for now, we, we've hit the, the key points, and it's really been, been very interesting to get into this in detail, Greg. 
I I would like to make sure we don't we don't run out of time because the last segment of the podcast is where I really like to give our listeners to get a chance to know my my guests on a deeper level. I'd now like to give people a chance to get to know Greg Nathan a little better. And you've shared in your background, you shared some interesting insight, but I guess I'd like to come at this from a different angle. What drives you? You've mentioned your love for the game, but what would you say drives you? John, I have I have what I call and I look for in other people. I have a servant's heart. I like to help companies. I like to help people. And I'm just, with that in mind, I'm also just confident enough in myself and in the capabilities of the National Golf Foundation. There, I, I don't believe that there's a golf business anywhere that I can't help. And so if anyone were to look at my LinkedIn profile, it's in there basically me saying that that exact thing, that I don't think there's a golf business challenged me to find a golf business that I can't help. And basically I've made my life's work out of it. My, my mother gifted me with this line basically saying motivation is everything in life. And so the... I didn't seek out industries or professions where, which were all around me in suburban New York of being working in finance or being an attorney. Everybody needs money. And yes, of course, everyone can be driven by money. It's very helpful in life. But I knew I wanted to work in golf. I wanted to work in an industry where the some of the nice things that happen to you that you have the opportunity to do in golf are priceless things mm-hmm. to, to a golfer. I'm that much of a crazy golf person that, uh, you know, I'm definitely a quality of life type individual. I'm totally on board with the current trend about experiences being more important than things. Mm-hmm. And Golf has this magical way of helping, getting to know people, truly understanding their character based on playing golf with somebody, but just getting to know people, the camaraderie that goes with the game, the fact that I work in this business. It's not that everybody plays. Of course, everybody doesn't play. People do jobs because they're hopefully good at their jobs. But there is in this business, the fabric that holds everybody together, this passion for this amazing game. And I, you saw me talk about Herb and Joe Graffis, the founders, the co-founders of the National Golf Foundation, 1936. And golf was purely a private game during the Gilded Age from 1900 to just think about 1880 to 1925. It's like purely a private game in America. But these two Chicago guys, these two brothers, they looked at golf in Chicago, and Chicago is one of the great golf cities in America, and they looked at golf in Chicago and they said, you know what? golf is going to be big business in America. 
golf is going to be part of the American dream. And the fact that these two guys could see it. And now I work for this organization that has helped promote golf. That, that was our really our original role right. that, Her, that Herb and Joe Graffis took on was to be the promoters of the game of golf and to look at where golf is today, $102 billion industry in America. It's really cool thing to sit where I sit, someone who loves the game this much. And I sat on stage, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I get to think and write and talk about golf and I, I get paid for that. <laughs> and and somehow I found yeah. the magic. I, I found the way to do this for a living. And and back to the original thing. I love helping people. And I love if you love golf and you love business, there's no no better job for yeah. for, for me. It might not be best job for somebody else, but it, it's the right job for me. And I'm so fortunate, I have to say, to be able to operate and learn at the shoulder of Joe Bettis for the last 16 years. What a gift uh, that is. You've so many nuggets there, but I'm not going to spoil it by trying to add anything. What you've mentioned, Joe, you've mentioned the Graphis brothers, but I'd like to ask you in a very pointed way, who inspires you, Greg? Wow. That's really hard. People inspire me. I've always, I think that they're one, one of the things I've, I've, I'd like to say I've developed over the years, definitely with a lot of help from the vision of Dr. Bettis is look, I'm, I'm not a particularly, I'm not a particularly religious person. I had, I was exposed to everything growing up. That's a story for another time. But I have philosophically, I just think it's the world is run based on the interaction of people. And so I, I tend to really pay attention to why people do what they do. And hum, humanity uh, makes me think. Humanity inspires me. I don't, I'm sure if I thought about it, I could come up with some heroes, but I, I'm, I know how lucky I am and I've got a great family and I love this gig that I do. And that inspires me I'm trying to keep improving, Good trying to help you, trying to help people. Good for you. Listen, you feed on people and it was evident during the two days that I saw you in action uh, last week. So your reference to the fact that you're inspired by humanity was very much, it was very much evident there. Thank you. It's hard to, it, it can be hard to be inspired by humanity <laughs> uh, these days. So you don't, I'm not Pollyanna in that way, but I, I guess that's what just get, gets me going every day is, I know I'm going to, I know I'm going to be with people today and hopefully I can make somebody smile. Yeah. 
the way you speak about your founders related to the impact that they've had on the game 20, 30, 40 years down the road, what are you hoping people say about the impact that you've had on the game, Greg? I guess it, it, it does come down to this organization that I represent. Over our 87-year history, the organization has always evolved and changed to do what the industry needed at the time. There's all kinds of stories. I'll just share, I'll just share one mm-hmm. that, that, that give an example. So during World War II, the rubber supplies, the rubber resources in America were all used for the war effort. Mm-hmm. But what that meant is that the manufacturers of golf balls couldn't make golf balls. So what the NGF did during World War II was create a golf ball reconditioning program where people could turn in used golf balls to the local shop. And they would go, the NGF ran this program, and those balls would get reconditioned and then put back into circulation so that golf could be sustained. Mm -hmm. Like the golf sustainability banner over your head. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing my job going into the future, it's making sure that the NGF continues to evolve in a way that serves the industry in the best way possible. And we're, we recognize because we study why people play and mm-hmm. we study why people don't play. We, we really pay great attention to, we have to look carefully at the warts. We have to look at what golf doesn't do well and what the industry doesn't do well, because if we think this game is so great, then we want more people to enjoy it. And we, if that happens, the businesses are more successful. When we look at the things that the golf industry doesn't do well, we need to be on the forefront of that. I want the National Golf Foundation needs to be in the forefront of that. And we're working on something right now. It's actually using a brand that we've owned since 1994, the year that my favorite New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup, is the year that that the this welcome to golf. Mm-hmm. concept became important to the national golf foundation. We actually had the rights to use Charles Schultz peanuts characters, and we created some booklets called, about welcome to golf and try to make golf more approachable and accessible and friendly. And it's no different than it is today in 2023 in terms of we need to improve that. Welcome to Golf in 2023 and beyond has a much more modern twist. It has to do with creating a venue where people who want to get started at golf can go and learn, not learn grip, stance, and posture. Mm -hmm. Okay. Since the beginning of this conversation, I've, I've alluded several times, it's about comfort. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Can a non-golfer who's interested in taking up the game be comfortable in the golf course environment? Can they be comfortable with other golfers? Or are they constantly freaking out about embarrassing themselves? So imagine this opportunity that we have to improve that, to make that better, to have a place for someone to go who typically, when I need to change the battery in my key fob, I go to Google and I go to YouTube. I encourage you to think about what would you do if you wanted to start playing golf in 2023? If you were to go to Google, if you were to go to YouTube, what would you find there? And I can tell you what you'd find there. You'd find uh, links to a lot of instruction. Mm-hmm. But we believe that there there's a missing element that the NGF is going to be concentrating on. This is a real important program to Dr. Bettitz uh, and to the NGF is, and, and you'll be hearing more about it going forward is creating the ultimate venue for somebody who wants to get started in this great game. Awesome. Listen, I sounds like a subject for our next episode, Greg. But I, I, I'll tell you, I'm really impressed with you have great respect for the values, the principles, and the people that founded NGF. And I get the sense you're, you feel real privileged to be able to carry the torch into the future. And you're doing it in an extremely passionate, creative, and intelligent way. So I, I, I'm very grateful for this conversation and look forward to many more conversations. And thank you very much for being with me here today on the Golf Sustainability Podcast. My pleasure, John. Great being with you and hope to see you soon. You will. And to our listeners, thank you very much for being with us today on what was a really very special conversation and I hope each of you got as much out of it as uh, I did. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Tell your friends about it. And don't forget to go to ngf.org and subscribe to the Fortnite bi-weekly newsletter that's free. You'll really or become enjoy it. Or become a member. Or one step at a time, Greg. Support what we do. <laughs> All right. Peace, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Take action on the ideas inspired by this episode. You can find out more about golf sustainability in the show notes for each podcast episode and following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player, and we'll see you soon on another episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast.